as Henrik said yesterday, uh, he invited me to go to a football game with him, and I'm, football's not my thing, but at some point in the football game, people were doing this, and I, I, don't, know, I don't know what that means. Um, but it strikes me that, strikes me that uh, often in the places we are, we, we say or we do things that we don't necessarily know what they mean. Um, Hosanna is one of those things that Christians say that I think many of us don't quite know what it means. Most of the Bible is written in uh, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Aramaic, but, or the New Testament in Greek, excuse me, but Hosanna is Aramaic, and it means, Lord, save us now. It became a word of praise or hope for people. And it strikes me that it's a perfect, it was a perfect song leading into this sermon, uh, but because none of us uh, speak or read Aramaic, or f- very few of us, uh, I thought it was worth saying. So please join me in a word of prayer, and we're going to open up God's word together. Lord, save us now. We long for your redemption, for your life, for the hope that you have, and the deliverance that we cannot achieve on our own. We long to share in the honor of your good name. And yet so often we are stuck in the shame and brokenness that is the best our world has to offer. So Lord, save us. Save us now. Show us the way to experience your deliverance, your life, your glory, and your honor, even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of you know that uh, this past week, about a week ago actually, I returned from Synod, from the decision-making and governing body of our denomination, and I found myself wondering again about encountering the living God, this theme that we've been looking at. What does it look like to encounter the living God in the midst of struggles and grief and pain, in the midst of exhaustion and frustration, and the never-ending challenges of our life? And as I wondered, I looked at Jesus and the Gospels, and specifically looked at John chapter 12, which I want to share with you this morning. In John 12, uh, there were some Greeks who were among those who went up to worship at the festival. This is uh, toward the end of Jesus' life, one of the festivals in Jerusalem, and Jesus is there. They've rented a house. Uh, They're staying somewhere, Jesus and his disciples. And these Greeks come to Philip, who was, with, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew, and, and, and Phil, excuse me, Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. But now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. Then John tells us a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So far, the reading of God's word. I don't know about you, but the call of Jesus has always been compelling to me. At the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus' call to his disciples was very simple. Two words, follow me. Then during his ministry, people are, were looking for Jesus or wanting some proof of the kingdom of God that it really was coming, that it really was there. And Jesus' answer to them was often the same. He said, come and see. The proof of who Jesus is and was and the kingdom of God coming was never just the words of Jesus. It was also Jesus' actions, Jesus' way. The kingdom of God is never just words. The kingdom of God also comes with the Holy Spirit, with God's power, with real transformed lives. And then later in Jesus' ministry, in this, uh, not, not in this particular story, but in some others, something really beautiful and also very sad happens. Jesus begins talking more and more toward the end of his life about going to the cross and going to die. And his disciples, again and again, try to talk him out of it. No, Lord, you don't need to do that. Now, I've only ever heard altruistic or kind motives attributed to the disciples. They want to help Jesus. They don't want him to suffer or have to go through this pain. And yet I wondered this week if their reaction was perhaps more human. Jesus had called them to follow him. And they had said yes. Jesus had called them to come and see what the kingdom of God was like. And they had come and they had seen And now Jesus was going to the cross. He is going to suffer and die, and they do not want to go with him. These Greek guys want to see Jesus. Many people want to see Jesus. Many people before the Greek guys want to see Jesus, and and since them too. There are many people in our church this morning who we are interested in seeing Jesus. We might leave a room like this and say, wow, what a preacher. He knows Aramaic. Or maybe even better, wow, how impressive Jesus is. It's good to see Jesus for who he is and who he was. But if you're going to call yourself a Christian, a disciple or follower of Jesus, then you will not only see Jesus, you'll be faced with Jesus' call to follow him and even to follow him to death. As we get into this this morning, I want to be clear that I'm not talking particularly about the kind of death where your cells break down and your heart stops beating. I'm talking about emptying ourselves, emptying ourselves of ourselves, emptying ourselves of our fullness, of our pride, of our selfish desires, our confidence in ourselves in our institutions, or our work ethic. The kind of death I'm talking about is a death that says, Jesus is all that I have, and I'm good with that. But of course, 
those of us in this room have so much more than Jesus, don't we? And so dying is harder for those of us who are here because we have a whole lot more to lose than some other people. When these Greeks come and they want to see Jesus, Jesus really says three things to them that uh, we're going to look at today in his answer. The first thing that Jesus gives them is an image, a picture of death and resurrection in the kingdom of God. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless a kernel of wheat, this is the picture Jesus uses, right? Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The second thing, the second picture, uh, is a call to follow, even to follow to death. Jesus says anyone who loves their life will lose it. But anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is that about? Whoever follows, serves me must follow me, and uh, where I am, my servant will be there too. And then thirdly, Jesus uh, gives a picture of his reward and his disciples' reward, our reward, God's good name. What shall I say, Jesus says, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So let's unpack these three images or three uh, sayings from Jesus a little more. First, looking at death and resurrection in the kingdom of God. The gospel writers remind us that Jesus knew that he was going to the cross to die. When these men come and ask to see Jesus, Jesus knows that he isn't going to be around to be seen much longer. And yet he says something profound by analogy here. Jesus says, if you're looking for a kernel of wheat and that wheat falls to the ground and dies, then you will actually find more seeds, more kernels of wheat. This is not just Jesus talking about his death. This is Jesus answering the question, we would like to see Jesus. Jesus is saying that through his death, people will be able to see Jesus in his disciples. That when Jesus falls to the ground and dies, as it were, his life is shared with and to those who follow him there. This passage, our John chapter 12, is just one of many that lead the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament to talk about this mystical or mysterious union with Christ that followers of Jesus have. In Colossians, Paul says, you died, he's writing, of course, to people like you and me who are still breathing, he says, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And again in Romans, he says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. The death that he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so in the same way, count yourselves alive, dead to sin, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The apostles in the early church testify to our spiritual union with Christ through his death. When Christians say that we die with Christ, we are, again, not talking about physical death. We're talking about emptying ourselves of 
ourselves, emptying ourselves of our fullness and pride, of our selfish desires, of our our confidence in ourselves and our institutions or our work ethic. The kind of death we're talking about is a death, again, that says, Jesus is all I have, and I'm okay with that. Jesus is my whole life. Jesus' words about a seed falling to the ground fly in the face of everything we see in our world and our society on any side of the political spectrum or social agenda. We believe uh, in Western society that growth happens through lobbying, that it happens through arguing our case well, that it happens by convincing people who are different from us. Jesus says that growth happens by emptying ourselves. The call of Jesus is first to come and follow and last to come and die. And here we get nearer to the heart of encountering God, emptying ourselves. We're all familiar, I expect, with Jesus' call to follow me. But rarely in Western culture do we hear Jesus' call to follow me as a call to come and die. Why is it that we stop short of that logical and necessary result of Jesus' call? We can see how Jesus called his first disciples to follow him and participate with him in everything he did. We might even feel free to criticize Peter or Judas or Thomas because they didn't follow Jesus fully to his death. Yet fewer of us than maybe we'd like to admit, few of us internalize the call of Jesus as a call to come and die ourselves. The call of Jesus to come and die is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus does another amazing thing as well. He, he doesn't say come and die to the Greek guys who want to see him. He actually says it to his disciples. In other words, Jesus' most challenging words are not for the, the crowds. Jesus' most challenging words are for the people who are closest to him. You may remember when I read this story just a few minutes ago that it was kind of an odd way into it. These Greek guys say to Philip, we would like to see Jesus. And then Philip goes to Andrew and Philip and Andrew together go to Jesus. We don't actually know from the story whether those Greek guys actually do see Jesus that day. Instead, the Greek guys have clearly come to Philip at this house where Jesus and his disciples are staying. Philip goes inside the house to where they're staying and checks with Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip together go into some inner room to talk with Jesus. So now Jesus is addressing his most beloved disciples in an inner room in this house in Jerusalem. And he says, Anyone who loves his life will lose it. But anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. Again, this isn't a message for the crowds or even for these Greek guys at the door. This is for Jesus' disciples who have already committed to following him. 
Jesus' most challenging words are always for the people who are closest to him. Before we spend a few more minutes with the content of Jesus' words, I just want to invite you to reflect on your own life. Are your most challenging words for the people that you love the most? Or are your most challenging words for the people that you disagree with or dislike the most? Here's what Jesus says to his beloved followers. If you have affection for your life as it is, you will lose it. But if you have an aversion to your life as it is in this world, then you'll keep it for eternal life. If we don't spend a few minutes and understand what's happening here, then we might think that Jesus is calling people to some kind of self-hate or self-punishment. But that's not the case. The Bible talks about God's relationship with sin in two ways. It says that God hates sin, which is a word that we all know. And it also says a word that's not usually translated in English this way anymore, that God abhors sin. We don't use that abhorrence word very often today. Hate is about dislike, but abhorrence is about distance, about separation. The Bible reminds us again and again that God cannot be associated with sin. God does not want his creatures created in his image to be associated with sin. No one who loves God can be associated with sin. And yet, our world is full of sin. Even our own hearts and our own lives are full of sin. What will God do? If you know the story of the Bible, then you know that one of the first things that God does is that God gives his people the law. God's laws are his words from his mouth, first given to Moses and then shared with all of God's people. But it's important to know that just as Jesus and his teaching knew that his death was coming, God gave the Old Testament laws knowing not only how his people would respond, but also what it would cost him. God gave his law in the Old Testament, fully intending that the laws will lead to flourishing for his people and fully intending that giving the law would lead to death for Jesus. God gave the law to his people fully knowing that the punishment for breaking the law would cost God more than it would cost his people. God lives the law. Since people cannot become like him, like God because of our sin, God gives his righteousness to us to replace and cover over our sin. God, through Jesus, shares his honor with us because we cannot generate any lasting honor on our own. Now, because we've got a, high, a couple high school graduates in the room this morning, I want to do a high school compare and contrast exercise for a moment. Because we know that God is not the only one who makes laws. Jesus, as he's teaching and, and walking around, is always bumping into the Pharisees or Sadducees, the teachers of the law, 
And they make laws as well, or they explain the laws of God, but somehow their laws are different. The Pharisees and Sadducees interpret God's law or clarify or add to God's law, but they do it in such a way that prioritizes some part that leads to their own personal flourishing, even though it causes death or pain for others. Do you see the difference here? That God lives the law. God gives the law knowing full well that the punishment for breaking it will cost him far more than it costs his people. But the teachers of the law emphasize the parts of the law so that keeping the law will cost them very little, even if it costs others very much. The Pharisees and Sadducees align the law to their own lives so that people must become more like them in order to keep God's law perfectly. God pays the penalty for others' covenant breaking. God becomes, Jesus becomes like the worst of sinners so that the worst of sinners might become like him. The question for us if we want to know if our laws and our way of being is godly or if it's pharisaical, is this. Who bears the cost for breaking the law? Who bears the cost when someone gets it wrong? If we're making laws and rules and ways of being that cost others who might be already on the margins more than they cost us, then we can be sure that we are more like the Pharisees than like God. Until we have laws and rules and ways of being that demand more from us than they ask from others, we will not be able to rest in God's comfort. Hear Jesus' words again. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. If we really, truly want to follow Jesus, then we will be eager to pay more than others for the cost of sin. We will be willing to give everything so that others might know God. This is Jesus' call to empty ourselves. This is why the disciples didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. Because they saw what it would cost him, and they saw what it would cost them. And they didn't want to pay it. The call to Jesus to empty ourselves is a call to come and die. And let's be clear. You as an individual, you know best what emptying yourself needs to look like for you. We could talk about fasting, but it may be easy for one person to go 24 hours without any food, but harder for someone else. It may be easier for one person to live a celibate life, but harder for someone else. The call to die with Jesus is is a call to empty ourselves and a reminder that the life of a disciple is not about making some small shifts. It's about total transformation. It's about giving 
all of ourselves, especially and, and even the hardest things, to God. Fasting is not about eating some different or, or better food. It's about eating nothing. Likewise, emptying yourself is not about trying a little bit harder or pushing a little bit further. It's about giving everything to God. The Bible gives us this picture of humanity and people as on the road to death. But if we're trying to make small course corrections on the road to death, we're not going to help ourselves out all that much. If we're loving our own lives, Jesus says, we'll still lose them. To truly find life, we need to give it up. We need to have, in order to have the life of Jesus, we don't need to make some small course corrections. We need to repent, to turn fully, to allow God to transform every area of my life, of our lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we struggle so much because we want the life of Jesus, but we don't want to give up our own lives to get it. We want the life of Jesus, but we don't want to give up our own lives to get it. We don't want to give up our own priorities or our own feel-good, our own money, our own time, our own confidence. And so we say, well, we'll just try a little bit harder. And yet, a try-harder gospel is not compelling to anyone. If anything, a call to try harder just makes us more tired. What's more, telling someone else to come and die is not a compelling way for any of us to be. Especially if, use myself as an example, if I'm not seen to be dying to myself, for me to say, oh, you come and die, it's not convincing or compelling. But actually giving up your voice, actually giving up your money, actually giving up your time, actually giving up your food for someone else, for something you love, that continues to be compelling. Emptying ourselves is a compelling way of being because it's the way of Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, the greatest thing in the world, but who emptied himself, took on the nature of a servant or even a slave who became nothing. Jesus concludes, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. An amazing thing happens when we follow Jesus in very costly ways, ways that are costly to ourselves, when we die to ourselves. When we do that, we bring glory to God's name. And, and whenever the Bible talks about God's name, it's also talking about God's reputation. When we follow the way of Jesus, God's name and reputation is glorified, is made good in the church and in the world. 
And we experience more deeply and more meaningfully our need for God and for God's glory in our own lives. Jesus says his soul is troubled because death is always troubling. Death is always painful. But we do not give up or turn back at the first sign of trouble or the first sign of pain because Jesus did not. What's more, when we begin to take even those first small steps following Jesus, not just with our words, but also with our actions, God shows us His glory. He meets us. He speaks to our hearts. He fills our lives. He uses us to be a blessing to other people. Fasting, as just one example, is literally about emptying yourself. Fasting empties your stomach so that you can focus your hunger and your emptiness on God. When you are empty, you can see better how God wants to fill you. If your stomach is always full of food, even healthy food, if your schedule is always full of things, even good things, if your mind is always filled with thoughts, even good thoughts, then when and how will you hear or experience your need for God? God does not make laws the way that the Pharisees or teachers of the law make laws. God did not create the world in order to force people to do what he desires. That's one of God's most amazing qualities, the, one of the foundational uh, attributes of God, or one of the attributes of God that was foundational and is foundational for the Reformed tradition. God's sovereignty. God is in control of everything. And yet, God does not force himself on any person. Though God is sovereign and over everything, he respects people's free will so that he might have a true relationship with us. So that we might truly desire him and want him. In our world today, it strikes me that we are often and always waiting for other people to change. We are waiting and expecting for others to change. As a parent, perhaps you're waiting for your kids to change. As a kid, you're waiting for your parents to change. In society, we're waiting for other people to change. It's exhausting. We've had enough, I think. Jesus' approach to a broken world is not to wait for other people to change. It's not to force other people to change. Instead, Jesus empties himself in love for others. He died so that we can live. That act of self-sacrifice is compelling. And when we follow Jesus, even to death, our lives are compelling, both to others and they're glorifying to God. God's name, God's reputation is glorified because lives of self-sacrifice are compelling to others. That is the way of Jesus. And when we fall to the ground and die, even in a small way, people see a kernel of Jesus in us. 
Let's come to God in prayer. God, we ask that as you continue to move in your church, among your people, as you send us out into the world again this week, that we would live lives that are compelling to others, that bring glory to your name. Father, we hear the call to come and die, and like your disciples, we always hesitate. We're worried about the pain, we're worried about the struggle, but God, we praise you that your approach to humanity and your great love for us was not a a pain avoidance strategy, but rather a, a love so deep that you gave yourself everything, your life unto death in love for us, that you fell to the ground and died so that your life might be shared with your disciples, with the whole world. Make us more and more, even this week, Lord, people who are eager to follow you, to follow you with our time, with our habits, to follow you with our priorities, with our hearts, and even to follow you to death. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.